Dear church family, thank you for your prayers for us, and we are glad to be home safe, even amidst all the uncertainty that we are currently facing in our country and in our state at this time. With regard to that uncertainty and that fear, certainly there are things that we need to be aware of and to keep in mind. Certainly, I don't want to minimize the realities of financial loss, of questions about school and how that will look for people going forward, uh, questions about jobs and the economy at large. But certainly the most important thing that we should focus on at this time, the most certain hope that we can turn to at this time, is that of our union with Christ, which is clearly highlighted here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me read those verses for us together now. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And in order to understand this passage in its proper context, let me review briefly for us Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul went into great lengths to praise God for the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ in chapter 1 and verse 3, and to outline all of the blessings and privileges associated with salvation, being chosen in him, being uh, purposed for to be us to be holy, being predestined to adoption, receiving redemption, receiving insight into the mystery of God's will, obtaining an inheritance, and being sealed by the Holy Spirit. This led Paul, at the end of chapter 1, to pour out thanks to God in his constant prayers for the Ephesians and ask that God would help them to know the full breadth of the salvation which they had received, particularly the dominion of Christ over all things, his position over the church, and now he, in chapter 2, looks back at their former state before they knew Christ and describes the depths of their hopelessness, the extent of their helplessness apart from Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Chapter five, or 2, verse 5 says, You were dead in your transgressions, and when that was the case, God made us alive together. Chapter 2 and verse 9 says this is not as a result of works, but rather by God's grace, verse 8, and this highlights the riches of God's grace that Paul described over and over again in Ephesians chapter 1. In the kind attention of his will, 1 and verse 5, the riches of his grace, chapter 1, verse 7, the riches of his grace, 
again, throughout the rest of the passage, was the basis by which God brought about salvation. What does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? In this case, it is not talking about physical death primarily, although the two are connected, but rather, spiritually speaking, we had no standing before God, and we were in slavery to our sin. Chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 describes this. You walked according to the course of this world. When we get to chapter 4, Paul is going to implore them, chapter 4 and verse 1, to walk worthy of the calling with which they have been called, that is to walk after a way that is pleasing to God, the way that they walked or lived or existed apart from and before Christ was the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Who is this prince of the power of the air? Well, this fits with Paul's warnings in chapter 6 to watch out for the schemes of the devil, chapter 6, verse 11, and the, describing the struggle as not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The prince of the power of the air is Satan, the devil, the enemy of God. We formerly served him, enslaved to sin, and he continues to deceive those who live in sin, according to chapter 2 and verse 2. What did this way of life look like before? It looked like living in the lusts of our flesh. Lust in the Bible is almost exclusively used in a negative sense. It, the word by itself simply means a strong desire, but this phrase, lust of the flesh, is used uh, in a negative sense to describe the unbridled desires of those who do not know God. There is a, a sharp contrast here between the self-control that ought to characterize the believer according to Ephesians 5 verses 18 and following and the lack of self-control that we demonstrate as unbelievers. We demonstrate this lack of self-control by indulging desires not only of the flesh but also of the mind. Sin permeates the entirety of our being and the result of it is that we are under God's wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. This passage strikes a devastating blow to the concept that we as individuals have some spark of goodness in us that nearly needs to be fanned into flame and then all will be better. Many have proposed the solution to the evils of society as things like education or patience or other things that deny the reality of the depths of the depravity within us. But Ephesians 2, in the first few verses, says, You were dead. You lived in lust. You indulged desires. You were under God's wrath. This is not an optimistic picture. This is not a picture that says everything will be okay if you get a second chance or if you try a little harder or if you learn a few more things at school. This is a picture that says you are lost. You are helpless. You are hopeless apart from God. And verse 4 has this great contrast for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, these two things are the basis on which, by which, God shows his great character to those who need it most. 
those who are described in chapter 1 as the ones who receive the blessings of salvation, these things come through God's mercy, the riches of his grace, the kindness of his purpose, which we do not in any way deserve. But these things in God are the basis for him making us alive. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, Romans 5, 8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we are dead in our transgressions, God intervenes and makes us alive together with Christ. And this is where we want to be careful not to draw too sharp a separation between physical life and death and spiritual life and death. They are not one and the same thing, but they are closely connected. The basis of our spiritual life is the life that God works in Christ at the end of chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 19, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice what Paul's going to say now in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Even when we are dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The reason that we have the promise of physical resurrection for our bodies is because we have this spiritual life that is connected with the resurrection that Christ himself experienced, which Paul describes at the end of chapter 1. The basis of it is God's mercy and God's love. The reality of it is that we were dead. God has made us alive. And the reason for it, the purpose that God intends to accomplish, is in verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not something that stops at the moment that God gives you new life and he says, all right, go on your way and you're all set, and I'm done with you, and have a good life. Salvation is something that continues from that point throughout the rest of our lives and into eternity. But Paul describes the nature of this salvation just to underscore the reality of it, that it is very clear, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God gives us his grace. God gives us this life. This comes through faith. Salvation in its entirety is the gift of God. If you look at your Christian experience and you think that praying a prayer, going to church, being a good person, any of these things that have some potential connection to salvation are the reason that you stand forgiven before God, this passage destroys such assumptions. This passage says, By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. Verse 9, why? So that no one may boast. Paul makes a similar point in Romans chapter 3. He says that we've been justified by Christ and what he has done so that God is the one who has accomplished it all. We have no basis for boasting. If we had accomplished our salvation in any way by ourselves, we would have a reason to boast. But the reality is we have no such reason to boast. Salvation is in its entirety the gift of God, God's sovereign purpose carried out in us. And yes, it comes through the hearing of the gospel. 
we must hear the gospel, which means someone has to proclaim it to us, which means that we ought to be faithful in sharing it. But that salvation that comes by faith through the hearing of the gospel is completely and totally and in every way the work of God. Verse 10 highlights this further for us. We are his workmanship. God is carrying out an amazing thing in crafting a people for himself, even as a great painter would paint a beautiful picture, even as a master sculptor would sculpt a statue in all of its glory, even as an architect would design and carry out the building of a magnificent structure. All of these things are the work of the one who carries them out. We are the work of God. We are the work of God for this purpose. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so we see in chapter 2 and verse 2, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Chapter 2, verse 3, you lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Those were the works that characterized your life before Christ. But in no way can we describe those things as good works. We have this question in the back of our minds. We may have neighbors, family members, friends, co-workers, people that we know just in the course of life who seem to be very nice people and do things that seem to fit with what would be described as good according to the Bible. And yet, because they are done according to the course of this world, in slavery and service to Satan and to the desires of their flesh, they are of no benefit in our standing before God and cannot be described in a moral sense as good, even if they seem to line up with God's expectations and requirements of humanity. And at one level, we might feel like this is unfair, but the reality is the Bible paints a picture that says, God does judge us according to our works. That's clear from the book of Romans. But those works ultimately cannot be the basis of our salvation because, first of all, none of us does only good works. And second of all, none of us does enough good works to undo the bad works that we have done. And finally, because those works are done for selfish purposes, even the most unselfish act of an unbeliever is not a good work in the sight of God in terms of the context of this passage. What then should we conclude that God's purpose is? God has taken us from being in slavery to doing bad works to being in service to Christ that we might do good works. God has taken us from spiritual death, bondage to sin, slavery to Satan, to spiritual life, being a part of God's family with the promise of the inheritance that we saw in chapter 1. God's mercy, love, and grace is clearly on display in the unfolding of these things, even as we saw all throughout chapter 1. And this picture of God helps us to have a balanced perspective of him, that even though God is sovereign in the carrying out of his plan, that God is also a kind father to his people. 
Do we deserve that kindness? No. We are described in many places in Scripture as being God's enemies. Even here in chapter 2, we do not deserve this kindness of God, but this kindness and goodness and love of God is a reality nonetheless. And so while we should never uh, deny the sovereignty of God, nor should we stress God's sovereignty to such a degree that we make God out to be a God that lacks all compassion and kindness and care and concern for his people. How does this passage help us to be guarded against the idea that my works contribute to salvation, even the good works that I continue to do after believing in Christ? Verses 8 through 10, by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. We have no grounds for boasting in our works before salvation because they are bad and unacceptable to God. We have no grounds for boasting in our works after salvation because they come after the work that God has done, are sustained by his power, and are only possible because of what he is doing in and through us. Why then ought we to do good works? We do good works recognizing that we were dead in our sins, recognizing God's great mercy according to verse 4, recognizing that God continues to unfold his kindness to us, verse 7, and recognizing that this is part of God's plan. We could say, in fact, God's primary purpose in saving us is so that we might be a people set apart for himself, presented to and joined with Christ. In order to support this idea, uh, consider Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. We're certainly not there yet, but I think that this goes along with what Paul is saying here in chapter 2. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, make her holy, Ephesians 1 verse 4, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that's the forgiveness we also see in Ephesians 1, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This fits perfectly with what Paul is saying here in terms of God's purpose in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what then is the picture of the Christian life that Paul holds out for us here? It is a picture of humility. You were dead. You were lost in your sins without hope, without God in the world. And so if you and I are ever tempted to be arrogant toward those who have not yet trusted in Christ or look down on them in some way, thinking them to be inferior to ourselves, Ephesians 2.1 and Ephesians 2.5 ought to kick the feet out of under that idea because you and I are not better than the people around us due to anything in and of us. This ought to produce in us great humility, great compassion, a desire to see those around us turn to Christ. In light of a circumstance like we presently face with all the uncertainty in our society, we should be kind and gracious and compassionate and loving toward those around us. We should not see this as an opportunity to advance political agendas or to say, I told you so's, or whatever else we might be tempted to do out of a position of arrogance and a misunderstanding of the great mercy that God has shown to us as sinners. 
we ought certainly not to undermine the significance of life. Just because this passage is primarily talking about spiritual life does not mean that physical life has no value. There have been many statements by Christians that are unfortunate and not honoring to God that boil down to things like, well, only this percentage of people will die with the circumstances that we are facing currently in our country, or uh, only the people at the extremes of society, the very old or the very sick, it, it'll, it'll hurt them. If, if we love those around us out of a sense of humility and compassion that a passage like this ought to produce in us, we ought to have value for the lives of people, primarily for their spiritual life, but also for their physical lives. And so along those lines, I would urge you to be wise in the actions that you take, to not be fearful of death to such an extent that we completely isolate ourselves from those who are in need. We are in a unique position as believers, knowing where we will end up and knowing that we do not need to fear death like some around us may do. But at the same time, we ought to be wise and not increase the likelihood of those around us uh, facing death unnecessarily. And this is a difficult balance for us to strike. We ought to have hope and confidence in the resurrection of Christ and not worry about the day that Christ calls us home, but we're also not trying to rush that day for ourselves or for those around us. And so when we look at life and death issues, we need to keep this sort of perspective in mind. We ought to have humility because of where we were. We ought to have value for life because spiritual life and physically life, physical life, although not the same thing, are closely connected. We ought to have an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the kindness that God has shown to us. We deserve nothing of God's kindness to us. We could not constrain God in any way. And yet God has done a mighty work in our lives if we have trusted in Jesus Christ and begun to experience the life that Paul describes here in Ephesians chapter 2. This work that God has done is so certain that Paul in chapter 2 and verse 6 is able to speak of what is yet to come as though it is already a present reality. Paul says, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking about it in a sense as though it's already happened, even though we are not yet in God's presence. This is a certain reality. And if God has given us spiritual life in the past, if God through Paul, speaks confidently of what he will do in his presence in the future. Then when it says he will show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, we ought to believe that God is going to do what he has said. Humility, considering where we have come from, value for life, particularly the life rejoicing in what God has done and desiring for others to share in this same life, and then hope. This passage ought to inspire in us hope. If God has kept his promises in the past, if what Paul says here about God's work is true, we of all people ought to have hope. Our trust is not in our jobs. It's not in the things that we have saved up. It's not in the things around us in our homes. 
It's not in the cars we drive. It's not in the hobbies we enjoy. It's not in any of these things. Our hope, our confidence ought to be in God's good character based on his past riches and the promises that he has made to continue to pour out his grace and his kindness toward his people. Do you have that hope? If you have that hope, live as though you have that hope. Share that hope with those around you, and may that hope be the greatest thing that people around you know you for. And then as we close, verse 10, God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. What do those good works look like? That's a question each of us needs to examine our hearts and ask, what does living in good works, living out good works, look like in light of verse 10? When we looked at the book of James together, good works looked like showing compassion on those around us in the church. It looked like not showing favoritism. It looked like making sure that people understand God's word clearly. So what then can we do? Keep in touch with your fellow church members during these difficult times. Find out what needs they may have. As a church, certainly we're trying to do that, but you have opportunities to perhaps become aware of these things sooner than I or the deacons may know. Minister to one another's needs, and we are more than willing to support you in that task. If your neighbors have needs, you do not save your neighbors by sharing food, toilet paper, clothing, basic necessities with them, but you do give to them a good testimony of Christ. Consider those opportunities and in wisdom take them as God gives you a chance to do so. Certainly trying to follow all of the guidelines about um, not excessive contact and not all of those sorts of things, but as I said before, we need to recognize God is sovereignly in control of whether we do or don't get sick about the span of our lives and not to fear opportunities that we have to minister to those around us. Show compassion. Look for opportunities to make the most of the time that God has given you, perhaps, with your family. If you are not reading God's Word together, pick a book. Pick a chapter, pick a few verses, sit down, read through those, talk through those together. I would certainly encourage you to do that with regard to this passage. I've, I've emailed you a copy of the questions uh, that we would normally discuss on Sunday nights. So certainly look at those together and discuss those together. But it doesn't have to be limited to just this passage and these questions once a week. This is something that we can be doing regularly throughout the week. This is something that I can work on. This is something that all of us can work on doing better with our families, discussing and considering and focusing and applying God's word throughout the week. Most importantly, I would encourage you to trust in God. If God has done the things that chapters 1 and this first part of chapter 2 describe, let's trust in God. God has been there for his people in the past. God will continue to be there for his people in the future. And there is nothing that can separate us from his love if we know him and have believed in him through Jesus Christ. 
So trust in him. Share that trust with your family, with all of those around you. And remember what God has done. You were dead in your sin. Now you are alive in Christ. You had no hope of earning your way to God, but he freely, by his grace, provided a means of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. God has done an amazing work in salvation. We were his enemies, now his children. We were far from him, now we were brought near, as we'll see in the second half of this chapter. Rejoice in the salvation that you have received in Christ, and trust in God, and he will be with us.